I expect that many of you have heard of The Da Vinci Code, novel by Dan Brown. Even if you haven't read the book or seen the movie, you've heard about it. And if you've passed a bookstore any time in recent weeks, you've seen displays on the window of the follow-up to that called The Lost Symbol. And uh, in this, he follows his formula uh, with a plomb, and it works, if you like the, the, the earlier books of Angels and Demons. Only this time, the arcane and the esoteric is set among high-ranking Freemasons in Washington, D.C. It's delicious if you like that sort of thing. And if you do like that sort of thing, uh, then you'll notice there's a baddie in it. And the baddie in this was a particularly unattractive character, who likes to sacrifice uh, increasingly large animals, starting with, with small ones, and, and believes that shedding the blood of these animals makes him strong, and believes that somehow, and claims that it was across all time and all ages, that sacrificial blood uh, brings about some sort of um, almost mechanical, mysterious mechanical, but mechanical nonetheless, effect. Now, for those who love this kind of mystery... The epistle to the Hebrews is right up your alley, and especially what we have today. Because our reading today is about an arcane, esoteric mystery, a ritual. A ritual that we don't really know everything about that there is to know. But we know a bit. And what goes on in this ritual is that one day a year, in the the period of the second temple, uh, right in the the middle, uh, the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant, let's get Indiana Jones in here too, the Ark of the Covenant would have been uh, kept, or at least remembered, and, and that Holy of Holies was covered by a veil. And one day a year, the high priest would go through various rituals of purification, which included apparently the sacrifice of a bull, some magnificent, expensive, extravagant, um, enormous sacrifice and then and then robed in some magnificent white robe at the appointed time the veil would be torn or rent asunder uh, does that sound familiar would be would be stretched apart and he would come out uh, sprinkling the sacrificial blood over the people and what he was doing what we know what we understand he was doing was he was embodying god's action toward the people for the restoration of relationship for the forgiveness of sin, for the uh, renewal of the life of the people for another year to come. It was the sprinkling of sacrificial blood that, that was marking, uh, signifying God's action of coming to the people, offering forgiveness in some important way. Now, many Christians have for years connected wanted to connect the shedding of blood with the will of God in some mechanical way. There's something about that bloodshed, uh, particularly in a, in a conscious, sacrificial way on an altar, that has a mechanical outcome, whether it's forgiveness or strength or the warding off on enemies or keeping evil at bay or even the gift of salvation itself. But for most of us, this notion of blood bring, bloodshed bringing about something good is, is problematic at best. So what, what if the key thing about sacrifice or making things holy, if I carry to make sacra holy, what if, what if the key thing about making things holy is not the blood itself, but what the blood signifies? What if sacrifice is about the offering of the stuff of life, the offering of what really matters, the offering of what 
keeps us going. Because if that's right, then whatever any person making a sacrifice for any reason thought they were doing, the thing that made the act holy was the offering of self, the giving of self in love. And so the author of Hebrews sees Jesus in this sense as like a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's the order of the righteous king, an order of priests that is higher than the Levites and so on, a magnificent priest. And what Jesus offers, according to this book, is nothing less than himself, the action of God embodied, made incarnate, embodied to the people to enter, inviting entry into righteousness or right relation. So those who are fascinated by the secrets of the Masons or the codes of Da Vinci or the idea of secret wisdom passed down the ages or the conspiracy churches about theories about the church, delicious stuff. But those who are fascinated might do well to ponder this mystery that is at the heart of it all in one reading. And that is that the way of life is the way of self-giving love. That in giving, we receive. In service, we find freedom. And in dying to ourselves, we're able somehow to, to grasp life. And grasping this truth itself requires for most of us a really profound conversion of life, a conversion of perspective. It can take place in a moment or it can take place over a lifetime but it's rather like the conversion that Job was to experience at the end of his ordeals Job had lost everything he'd been stripped, Job was a righteous man, he'd been stripped of his wife and his children and his cattle and his wealth and his land and even his health in the end, all the while saying I am, I am righteous and his friends in various ways saying you must have done something to deserve it and he's saying no I am righteous and then in the end he's, he's bemoaning his fate to God and God speaks out of the whirlwind says Job were you aware who planted the earth who put the earth on its four corners who has the might and the majesty uh, to create the heavens and the stars above let's get some perspective here and what we know is that Job hearing God repents he turns around he doesn't repent because he's done something wrong he repents of, of all those presumptuous moments where he, he, he was acting as if he was God, as if he was the Lord of the universe in some way. And he, he, he turns it around and he gets a new perspective. And when he gets that perspective, we're told that everything was restored to him. This, uh, this conversion, it's, it's tricky to get at. Many of you will remember John Claypool, or you'll know of his writings, you'll know of his sermons, and most of you will know that his last years, uh, he was here at All Saints, and Anne is usually with us Sunday by Sunday. Um, but years before, years earlier, he faced the death of his 10-year-old daughter. And he wrote about losing Laura Lou in a book called Mending the Heart, a little book it's in our library. And he tells of how, in the days after her death, he found himself going back to Genesis, of all things, and reading the story of Abraham and Isaac and wondering whether this story wasn't at least in part about reminding Abraham that Isaac was a gift and reminding him that even the life that he might have considered most precious to him was a gift. And I want to use John Claypool's words here. 
he asked, did Abraham remember that he had never deserved this long-awaited child at all, but received him from a generous God? Or become, had he become possessive of what had always belonged to another and was given him out of sheer and bottomless grace? It dawned on me, says John, that Laura Lou had come into my life exactly as Isaac had come into Abraham's. I had never deserved her for a single day. She was not a possession to which I was entitled, but a gift by which I had been utterly blessed. And as that sense of her glowed in the darkness, I realized at that moment a choice stood before me. I could spend the rest of my life in anger and resentment because she had lived so short a time and so much of her promise had been cut short. Or I could spend the rest of my life in gratitude that she had ever lived at all and that I had the wonder of those ten grace-filled years. Now, some of you know that choice for that reason. And I pray that the rest of us never have to be faced with that choice in that way, in the way that John was. But sooner or later, perhaps in a moment, perhaps over time, the choice is before us as to whether we're going to approach life as a gift, live with generosity and freedom and gratitude, or whether we're going to keep approaching life as sort of pinched, something to be managed, something to be governed, something where we can be filled with resentment. The recognition that all that we are and all that we have, even life itself, is a gracious gift. That is the foundation of understanding the reality of sacrifice is not ultimately about our own sense of loss, but is rather about the offering, the generous offering of the stuff of life itself until we discover that it is in giving that we receive, in dying that we made whole, in service where we might appear to be bound, we're actually free. And so what do we do day in and day out and week in and week out? Well, we engage spiritual practices that serve as reminders of this choice that we have made and, or perhaps choice to which we aspire. We gather around the table remembering what is of ultimate worth and hearing the stories that tell us who we are. We practice uh, generosity with our tithes and our offerings and our commitments and our pledges when we're, when we're giving in a sustained and sustaining way, week in and week out, practicing so that we can live freely and generously. Or when we talk about what we're going to do with our campus, that'll be a conversation for the next year or so, and how we, how we might want to uh, renew the block in ways that honor the earth. Uh, when we give thanks at meals, we're practicing generosity. These are spiritual practices that remind us of the choice we've either made or the choice to which we aspire. We practice the offering of something that seems essential to our life, the placing of trust in God, and in so doing, seeking deeper conversion, deeper appreciation, deeper experience of the promises of freedom that come from being in right relation with love that made us for love. So I invite you in to use our usual time of silence for prayer.
to begin anew the work of giving thanks to God and then carry that prayer through the service. Listen to how much we talk about blood and sacrifice and start hearing it as the offering of the way of life, the offering of the stuff of life in order to find the way of life. And carry that prayer, particularly the offertory in which we offer our gifts in a way that makes them holy in preparation for our great sacrifice, the sacrifice of praise, the sacrifice of thanksgiving. In silence and in response to the gospel, let us pray.